As a church, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel. Today, we come to chapter 16. Listen now for these words from chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, verses 1 through 13. Listen for God's word to us today. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Jesse sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that's one of the most celebrated verses and sections, not only in 1 Samuel, but in all of Scripture. Do not look only at his outward appearance. Mortals look at the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. God looks at the heart. That is not only we read how God sees, but that's how God encourages Samuel to see as he is selecting one of Jesse's sons to be the future king of Israel. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, God says to Samuel, as Samuel has to decide which of these sons would be king. In the established social hierarchy of that time, The oldest was deemed the spot of most privilege and power, and if they were younger, would often be the tallest too. Eliab would be the natural choice, the oldest and presumably tallest of Jesse's sons. By outward appearance, it would be him. But in today's passage, God espouses a kind of blindness when it comes to mere outward appearance. God encourages Samuel. God is able, we see, to look 
more deeply, to look beyond appearances inside and see the full person. Jacques Lucerne spent his life learning how to see beyond mere appearances, to see more than just what the eye can catch on the surface, and he has written so much about what he was able to see that he's an example of what it can mean to grow in a sight that does not depend simply on outward appearances on the superficial, but can delve deeper into the whole person, the whole thing, that can see more than just what the eye catches on first glance. Lucerne grew up in the 1920s and 1930s Paris. And when he was seven years old, he got in a fight. And it may have broken out this fight the seven-year-old Lucerne had with a classmate because his classmate might have called him four eyes. Lucerne wore glasses at this time. And in the midst of the scuffle, Lucerne was pushed against the side of the teacher's desk, and one of the arms of his glasses went into his right eye. The other ended up scratching the retina of his left eye. When he woke up in the hospital, he learned his right eye had been removed, and his left eye was beyond repair. From the reaction of those around him, he quickly learned this was a calamitous affair, that he might be in big trouble and reduced only to begging. The doctors encouraged his parents to send him away to a residential school intended for the blind, but his parents resisted that and said, no, let's send him to a local public school and have him learn how to interact with a world that does utilize its eyes, have him learn how to interact with the world around him. And so that's what they did. His mother learned Braille with him, that written language where you can feel dots and from that be able to tell words. They got him a Braille typewriter that Lucerne brought into class. And his parents also had a sense right from the start that their son might just have insights to pass on to them. His father said, when you discover things, be sure to tell us. Well, 10 days after his accident, after becoming blind, Lucerne discovered something. And he described that experience like this. He wrote, I could not see the light of the world anymore, yet the light was still there. Its movements, shades, colors, I felt it gushing forth Every moment and brimming over the source of light, I realized, is not in the outer world. We believe that it is only because of a common delusion. The light dwells within ourselves. The light dwells within ourselves. What in the world could he be talking about? Isn't light what comes from the sun or from a light bulb or other form of artificial light that bounces off something and then is taken in through our eyes, sending signals to our nerves? How can he talk about a light that exists inside of a kind of seeing where you don't use your eyes at all? Lucerne would later confound his friends by being able to tell without the use of his eyes the difference between an oak, a poplar, and a nut tree. How did he tell the difference? The sound. 
He could also tell the size and sometimes even the shape of a wall by the pressure it exerted on his body. And he would write of how we see so little when we rely just on our eyes. He gave the example of a table. He said our, our eyes glance quickly at the table and then move away to something else. There's so much of that table we don't take in with just our eyes. He said, pause and feel the table. And you might just feel an indentation that reveals it was not planed by machine, it was planed by hand. Perhaps knock on the table with your knuckles, feel the grain of it, and you might just be able to tell what wood it is that's underneath all that color and varnish. Feel it, smell it, and you might just smell candle wax that reveals some of the history of that particular table. There is so much about a thing. We need more than just our eyes to take in, pause, and attend to things. He would later say he attended to thousands of things since he became blind. Perhaps it was this ability that made Lusseran so alarmed at the rise of Adolf Hitler in Germany. Lusseran learned German so he could understand the German language on radio stations that he could pick up in France. After Germany invaded France in 1940, Lusseran, at the age of 17, formed a resistance group to Hitler. For his resistance activities, he was later arrested and placed for two years in a concentration camp. It said he was an inspiration to other people, that even though he couldn't see, he understood German and so could share with other French prisoners what was going on in the world around them. He could take it in where they couldn't, and he became in many ways their eyes and ears. After being released from the concentration camp, he would eventually immigrate to the United States, and there he would teach French literature and write books about what it means to see, to truly see. Jacques Lusseron reminds us that what often passes for seeing is just gliding over the outward appearance of things. There is another kind of seeing where you go deeper. Well, some of you I know are fans of Marvel Comics, and so you know the inspiration, of course. It was probably Lucerne for Stan Lee's creation of the character of Daredevil. Someone who as a young child had an accident and lost the use of his eyes, was blinded as a boy, and yet his other senses became more acute. And so the superhero Daredevil is now able to hear the heartbeat of other people and tell from that whether they might be lying he can hear, sense, even smell an enemy long before they reach him. It's this notion that there is a powerful way to see, to see more than we get often by just relying, over-relying on our eyes. Well, in today's passage from 1 Samuel, we're invited to consider this kind of sight where you don't just glance at outward appearances but see into something more deeply. Mortals, they look on the outward appearance we read, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, back in the time of First Samuel, the heart symbolized the whole of the inner person. Today, we often describe the internal person by referring to three internal organs, right? There's the head, 
where we imagine thoughts are located, the heart where we imagine emotions are originate, and then the gut where instinct comes. Well, back in 1 Samuel's time, there was not just one, there was not three internal organs, there was just one, and it was imagined as the whole center. The heart was a portrait, the kind of core of the whole inner life, so it was shorthand to speak of the character, the moral center, the thoughts, the imagination, the instinct, the decisions you make, all of that was seen as arising from the inner person, that center that you might call the heart. And so, by being able to see the heart, by portraying God as seeing the heart, it means God can see the whole inside of a person, not just the outside. And this internal seeing is contrasted with the kind of external seeing that was on display back when Saul was crowned king. You remember, Saul was first introduced without any mention of Saul's heart. Instead, this is how Saul was introduced. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Saul stood head and shoulders above everyone else. Nothing said about his character, his faithfulness to God, just Saul's outward appearance. And then, as we follow the story of Saul, we discover that heart, we see it revealed in Saul's actions, and we see in that heart was not a kind of faithfulness and obedience to God, not the kind of love of God and neighbor you would hope for from a king. Instead, we see jealousy, we see envy, we see disobedience, concern for himself and his power, and a failure to see and be concerned, especially for the poor and marginal. And so God rejects Saul as king. And then when it's time for a new king, when it's round two for the coronation this time, God urges Samuel, let's, let's look more deeply this time. Let's not just look at the outward appearance. Let's see the way I can see. Let's see deep into the heart. And so Jesse's sons are presented before Samuel, one by one, starting with the oldest. And one by one, Samuel rejects them, from Eliab, the oldest and presumably the tallest, all the way to the seventh son. And when all seven have been presented to Samuel, and Samuel has turned each one of them down as king, Samuel asked Jesse, do you have any other sons? Because God had told Samuel one of Jesse's sons was meant to be king. And Jesse says, well, those are all the sons inside. I mean, there's always the runt of the litter. There's always our youngest who isn't even here in the house. He's out tending the sheep. You don't want anything with him, do you? And Samuel says, bring him in. And so the youngest and the smallest, the one not even kept in the house but out with the sheep, that is the one God chooses as the future king of Israel. And with that, we see the God who famously brings down the high and mighty and lifts up the poor and lowly. The youngest and most marginalized of Jesse's sons is the one chosen to be king, for he has the heart that's needed, that commitment to love God and neighbor, that commitment, that compassion 
for all the people of God. And did you notice as David is brought in smelling of sheep and sweat, wearing not the clothes of royalty but of a farmhand through the dust and the grime, we see that he is handsome. This may just be a wink in Scripture to alert us that sometimes, sometimes someone can be beautiful both inside and outside. God sees the heart. God doesn't see as mortals see and just looks at the outward appearance. God sees the heart. That's why David is chosen. And on the one hand, this is bad news. This is bad news. God sees your heart each one of your hearts, not what I'm seeing right now. God sees your heart. God sees my heart, not just when I'm up here preaching, but in the dark of night. God sees the heart. God sees the envy, anger, jealousy, greed, self-loathing, pride that we might otherwise hide with our outward appearance. God sees the Saul in us, and it's something to see what is often hidden. But my last church, the nursery school director, the preschool director named Pat would join the rest of our staff for staff meetings each week. And she said, Matt, there are things that a nursery school director, a preschool director learns that so many other people are never aware of. Children sometimes say the darndest things. We get a glimpse. She said, here is one example. The other day, she had a little boy who raced up to her and said, Mommy threw a box of Cheerios at Daddy this morning. <laughs> Seconds after that, that same mother walked into Pat's office dressed immaculately in tennis attire, smile on her face, saying, how are you today? I hope you're having a wonderful day. And Pat couldn't help but smile, thinking how she'd just gotten a glimpse from that mother's son what was really going on in the heart. It can be bad news when somebody sees the heart. But there is good news too. In that great statement, the Lord sees the heart. The Lord sees the heart, for it's that great pronouncement that God sees not just the youngest child relegated to feeding sheep. God sees a king. God sees not a homeless person, a poor refugee, an orphan. God sees royalty. For God sees not just the outward trappings, God sees the whole person outside and in, and that whole person is one created in God's own image. That whole person is one to whom the steadfast love of the Lord, we read in the Hebrew Scriptures time and again, never ceases, even when that person or people stray from God's way. God was so determined to bless a chosen people and bless all families of the earth through that people that God just kept seeing them as God's children, as God's beloved, even when they displayed to the world an outward appearance that was sometimes ugly and unattractive, even when their heart was far from God. God saw a beloved child in them. And then in the New Testament, we read how God sees not just a wayward child who looked and smelled of pigs 
and had squandered his inheritance on wild living, pleading with his father to simply treat him like a servant. No, God sees that in that pig feeder God's own beloved child come home. God sees, we read in Scripture, not just the sin in us. God sees the Christ in us. God sees the Savior at work even now in our inner life as individuals and as a people. God looks at the heart. And that's good news for those of us who cling to Christ, for it means God sees our Savior in us. God sees how we are God's children adopted into God's family by faith. God sees the very one we lift up in song as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who now lives in us. God looks in our heart and sees royalty. Praise be to God. And with a God like that, can't we extend that grace when we look at others? Can't we see beyond the dirt and grime, beyond the family or social hierarchy, behind the job someone has or doesn't have, beyond whether or not they're attractive to the eyes and pause long enough to see in them the beloved child of God that they are? Can't we see someone who carries the very image of God in their person? Can't we see a member of one of those families that God saw fit to bless through one chosen family, through one chosen people? Can't we see something more than just uh, with our eyes, but see with a kind of inner light? Can't we see a very person or people God came in Christ to save? I wonder in this pandemic especially, have you paused long enough to listen to or share with another what's going on in the heart. It's been a challenging time to delve deeper. We've depended so much on screens and on outward appearance. Have you taken the time to hear from or share with another what's going on in the heart? Pain can come out when you look at the heart, but love can too. It can be the stuff of intimacy, the stuff of Christian community. When we dare look beyond outward appearance, dare share more than outward appearance, but be connected through the inner life that we dare share with one another. If we dare look and see inside, see the heart. I once caught a glimpse of someone who had this remarkable ability to see other people with the eyes of Christ, the inner light of Christ, see beyond mere outward appearance, but see what lay underneath, listen for it, attend to it. And this particular person, Dexter Thomas, happened to be blind. I met him when I was doing my Doctor of Ministry degree up in San Anselmo. He was one of maybe 20 classmates all together who were part of this particular program. And Dexter hailed from the Caribbean Twin Island Republic of Trinidad and Tobago. He moved from his home country to the United States for school and first studied in Michigan. But then he moved to the Bay Area both for the weather and to pursue a Ph.D. in homiletics. And he loved in the Bay Area, he said, how the traffic lights would talk to you. For a blind person, that was really helpful. He would bring into class with him one of these Braille computers. Have you seen it? 
There are amazing things where he could feel with his fingers and then write very quickly what was going on in class. He could call to mind extended quotes that we had just encountered in the reading the night before, and he could call them up in seconds faster than any of us and recite them verbatim. When Dexter would preach to the class, there were times where we preached to one another. When he preached to our group, when we met up in San Anselmo, it was like he could see us more deeply. He could attend to not just what our eyes were looking at or how we looked, he could attend to our hearts. He sensed what was going on. It's like he read the room and he couldn't even see. What I think was most remarkable about Dexter, however, was the sight that he brought with him when he went to Oakland Parks as part of his church's ministry to the homeless, to people who lived in the Oakland Parks and under the bridge. He went with Grand Avenue Seventh-day Adventist Church on occasions to deliver sandwiches to those who lived in the park and under the bridge. But he didn't want to just deliver sandwiches. He wanted to see more of who these people were. So he started playing dominoes with those who lived at the park. And his favorite thing was that if he won, to give those he was playing with a hard time and say, man, you all are some pretty sorry dominoes players. You just let a blind man beat you. If he lost, he would hang his head and say, how in the world could you take advantage of a blind man like that? He fast made friends, and he saw in those who lived at the park or under the bridge, not people experiencing homeless, but friends. And over time, he learned that they weren't able to make it to Grand Avenue Seventh-day Adventist Church or really to any church nearby that was too far away. So he decided, along with others from their church, to help people who lived in the park and lived under the bridge to officiate a service themselves. They would help coordinate it, but it would be up to them to actually run this particular service. And then they would, and he would listen as Shirley and Malachi, Mario and Doreen would read Scripture and interpret it, share how it applied to their life. He would listen as they shared prayer concerns, and he would join them in sharing prayer concerns from his heart. And as he participated in church and worship alongside these others' friends, he saw more than park dwellers or bridge dwellers. He saw human beings precious in God's sight. He saw the body of Christ, and he saw the Savior that dwelled in their hearts. Dexter saw royalty. Friends, may we have eyes to see. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen.